0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week's podcast will be about the upcoming Turkish elections. Over the past 20 years, the West has had to get used to Turkey as a spoiler. Under Erdogan, the government has pursued a policy of centralization and crackdown on free speech, minorities and opposition groups at home, while pursuing an increasingly aggressive and interventionist strategy abroad. Despite being a NATO member, Erdogan has kept Turkey neutral in the war in Ukraine. And continues to block Sweden's NATO membership, despite every other country in the alliance having given the green light. With elections taking place on May 14th, however, it has for the first time in years become possible to imagine a turkey without erdoğan as we record this erdoğan has his with his reputation tarnished by economic mismanagement and a questionable response to the earthquake which killed 60,000 people in february is trailing in the opinion polls the opposition unity candidate kebal kilishdaroglu will the opposition pull off a victory what steps should the west avoid in the run up to the election And what could EU-Turkey relations look like under a Kilis Daroglu presidency? Today, I have an all-star cast to answer these questions and many more. First up is Asla Aydin-Tashbash, who is an Associate Policy Fellow at ECFR and a Visiting Fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington. And also, coming back to the podcast yet again, is Jeremy Shapiro, who is Research Director at ECFR. The two have just written a brilliant piece, which is on our website, looking at what's going to happen in Turkey and what mistakes the West can avoid, but we're going to go into even more depth in the discussion that follows. Thank you very much for joining.
1: Thank
2: you, Mark. Thanks for having us, Mark.
0: So, Asla, you're following every twist and turn uh, in this election and have done an amazing job in writing it up and, and trying to keep people abreast of the situation. Can you... Uh, start by just giving us a picture of where we're at at the moment.
1: Well, Mark, you've really touched upon all the key points. The reason this election is more important and interesting than previous elections is for the first time in 20 some years, there is a possibility that Turks might vote Erdogan out. That, of course, has connotations for geopolitics, for the balance of power. You did mention how close Turkey had become to the non-West, in particular Russia, uh, over the past few years. But it also has connotations in terms of our ability to deal with elected populists, elected autocrats. Can they be actually voted out? It was it was an unsuccessful attempt in Hungary. There was a successful attempt against uh, Netanyahu if we could call him a populist uh, back 2 years ago but these are very fragmented divided societies polarized climates and and really the template that will be produced in Turkey will be important for other to observe in other countries in terms of balance of power you know Turkey has become too close to Russia in a few hours today Uh, Is Thursday, a day before this podcast goes on the air. But in in an hour or so, Erdogan will open Turkey's first nuclear reactor by a video appearance because he was unwell two days ago and we don't really know what it was. But he clearly has canceled his uh, programs yesterday. But nonetheless, we'll attend this opening ceremony along with Vladimir Putin of Turkey's first nuclear reactor owned and operated by Russia at a time like this. So obviously huge implications in terms of where Turkey will stand in this new age of geopolitical competition and systemic rivalry.
0: So I'd love to get Jeremy to talk about some of those questions as well and also some of the response. But before we do that, maybe you can just give us a tiny bit more about where we're at in the horse race and what the polls are telling us. and and what the main issues are at the moment.
1: So it's interesting. The opposition got together, just like they have in Hungary, and united parties of different ideological backgrounds. They're externally supported by Kurds. Uh, but they have field. They are fielding a candidate who is, at first look, is an odd choice because Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu has led CHP for many years. He's not the most charismatic Turkish politician. He comes from. He's a former civil servant, seventy-four years old. But his promise is being a uniter, a little bit like Joe Biden. Basically, he's not trying to be a version of Erdogan. He's not not a strong man, a gentleman. uh, We have visited him uh, as an ECFR delegation in two thousand seventeen, I believe, when we visited Turkish leaders and. Politicians, soft spoken, reasonable, strong democratic credentials, but not a macho guy who can enter a sort of debate with Erdogan in that sense. Yet, his pledge is uh, bringing Turkey back to rule of law and leading a transition figure. So, in many ways, it's the idea that he's trying to sell, not his own leadership, but the idea of a country that will back to rule of law and parliamentary system. Um, I think Turkish society is quite ready to say goodbye to Erdogan. The question is, will they give that mandate to Kılıçdaroğlu? I was in Turkey back in March, and I, I see this with younger people, with conservatives who have for, for over a decade voted for Erdogan, uh, with women who are now uh, increasingly upset about the sort of far-right, very, very far-right coalition, far-right nationalist coalition that he has built. The question is, is Kılıçdaroğlu that man? He was leading in polls and, and is looking like he can beat Erdogan if there's a runoff. But of course, polls, we need to be skeptical about polls because... You know in in Brazil, they were notoriously inaccurate. I think in two thousand and sixteen in the u s similarly, Trump has done better than people expected against Hillary Clinton. So I suspect this is going to be more neck and neck and we'll go to a runoff. Uh, May fourteenth is uh, the election date as for parliamentary and presidential elections. But if no one attains the the number you need, which is over 50% to be elected, that's a high bar for both candidates today. Then it goes to a runoff that's going to be two weeks later with all the drama and... God knows what that in, that a runoff might entail.
0: So Jeremy, we should talk a bit more about how to respond to various different scenarios, but from a kind of European and American perspective, do people think that a change of regime in, in Turkey is going to have big implications for Turkey's positioning? Is, is it going to mean a
2: return to the West in their mind? By and large, yes. Well, maybe I put it this way: they, uh, everybody that I talked to, I was in Washington last week. Uh, everybody I talked to there really wants to see Erdogan leave, and uh, I think that that's broadly true in in Europe too. But I wouldn't say that people are naive about what that's going to mean for Western Turkish relations. I think they think it will improve. Uh, things like, for example, the Swedish NATO membership will probably be resolved quite quickly. If the opposition takes over, but uh, I think that that the fundamental structure of Western Turkish relations won't really change. There is Turkey is just going to be an outlier. The the sort of national sense that Erdogan awakened that uh, that Turkey needs to be its own pole is probably not going to fundamentally change. And th- some things will get will become a little bit more difficult. And uh, uh, I think it might be more difficult to get decisions out of Turkey. And uh, I think that the idea, which is uh, popular in in certain parts of the West, that Turkey might be able to serve a sort of mediation role in the Ukraine war will probably go away, that without Erdogan in power, that's not going to be something that, at least in the short term, that a new Turkish government is capable of. Um, But. I think that at the most fundamental level, I think that what people are thinking is not that Erdogan leaving will solve all the problems in Western Turkish relations, but it will at least allow a reset. It will at least allow them to sort of uh, start again and to, to build up a better uh, relationship, which isn't, which isn't at the whim of this one guy.
0: So I want to talk about the, the article you both wrote about how the West should prepare for the elections. But maybe before we do that, Asla, you can just tell us a bit more about how you think the elections are going to uh, going to run in their last few days and weeks. Um, you know,
2: yeah, been, what's going to happen? Everybody wants to know. Uh, so
1: everyone asks <laughs> me what's going to happen, and uh, I know the answer, but I don't tell people. What but-
0: exclusive here? Except for those on The World in 30 Minutes. You have to make an exception for that.
1: World exclusive, yes. <laughs> uh, it's I, I think it's going to be neck and neck, but what do I know? There could be a blue wave that I don't see. I feel Erdogan's proposi- proposition to Turkish society mm-hmm. Is still fairly strong. He's um, mismanaged it and he's failed economically and after the earthquake. But also, you know, we're talking about a country that has double digit inflation and well over 50%. But unofficially, when you look at food inflation, it's quite clearly over 100%. So it's it's hard for him, it's hard for society to overlook that. On the other hand, the fact that he's still doing in 30%, nearly 40% is quite remarkable because his idea, making Turkey great again... The strategic autonomy is something that Turkish society has embraced. You know, Erdogan's campaign is interesting. They are unrolling Turkey's first aircraft carrier, docked in Istanbul, goes up and down the Bosphorus, Turkey's first tank, first t- Turkish-built tank, Turkey's first, you know, various sort of shiny objects, the car, which is built, Turkish-made build electron, electrical car by parts from other countries, but nonetheless. So he's putting these shiny objects in front of the people to make-
2: Nuclear power plant tomorrow. Nuclear
1: power plant today, uh, in, in an hour or so. Built by Russians. I mean, this is uh, these are um, these have an appeal.
0: So that's that's on the on the positive side. But the other thing people have been talking a lot is the kind of crackdowns, and the Kurds have often been a, a kind of focus for crackdowns in these sorts of things. What role do you see them playing in the election?
1: Oh, well, they will play a pivotal role, and really, they have suffered truly in terms of the political movement that is represented by HTP and now a different party, uh, because they were worried constitutional court. Would would shut down uh, their party. Just yesterday, a major crackdown: uh, Kurdish lawyers, journalists, uh, over a hundred and uh, over a hundred people in Diyarbakir. Uh, they have truly suffered, and they're also quite. Um, stigmatize in uh, Turkish politics now in a way that I had never seen. Everyone openly calls the elected officials, many of whom are, are jailed now, e- even elected mayors, but everyone openly calls them terrorists in the parliament. So obviously the election campaign is let's, uh, the opposition is supported by PKK, Kurdish terrorists, and the West, the West uh, being very vilified. Uh, trying to divide Turkey and also now increasing the uh, campaign built on anti-LGBT rhetoric. I mean, elements of what you see in Hungary and, and in other authoritarian systems, but much magnified. You have a Minister of Interior that's campaigning against uh, uh, the Kurdish party, but also against LGBT uh, uh, every day saying, If you elect the opposition guy, your son will marry his boyfriend. Day in, day out, this is a very vicious campaign. Uh, And I think that Turks are given this odd choice of wanting an independent and sovereign, a strategically sovereign country uh, versus their rights. It's it's terrible. But to his credit, Kılıçdaroğlu and the opposition has somewhat convinced a significant part of society that the problem is not just Erdogan, but this governance system, that if we don't return to rule of law, we won't have better economy. You're not going to be better off with this centralized system. I think that is important. I have no doubt that, you know, if it weren't for some of the disadvantages of Kulic personally, such as the fact that he comes from an Alawite background, that's an added uh, twist to the drama. Uh, but if it weren't for that, uh, an ex-candidate X ex leading the opposition camp would have been able to sweep through, you know, the polls, the, the vote.
0: Okay, I think we, we can look uh, in more detail at the different two different scenarios, but before that maybe Jeremy wants to lay out the core of, of what the two of you have suggested the West should be doing at this stage to prepare for the elections.
2: Sure, I, I think what, what we were trying to emphasize in the piece is in the first instance that um, the West, the US and the, by which we meant the West, the US and the EU principally, um, can't really be a determinative factor in the election. This is a Turkish election uh, and uh, the West in particular is in a bad odor in Turkey, but generally speaking, it, as Oslo was emphasizing, Turkey is a country which is quite jealous of its sovereignty, quite suspicious of outside influence, um, not just from the West, but, but principally from the West. And uh, and so there is a limit to what you should even try to do because it would be, it could really backfire. And so our first piece of advice is really don't try to influence the outcome of the elections, but that doesn't mean do anything. It, it, you, uh, The point is that what we think you can do is you can emphasize democratic principles from high levels of the U S and European governments and talk, um, talk consistently both during and after, uh, before, during, and after the elections about the need for a free and fair uh, process. This is something that resonates in Turkey just as it resonates everywhere. And I think that it, it's not considered interference to talk on these principled levels about free and fair processes, but that that means you should probably not be trying to intervene in specific issues w- uh, within the question of free and fair processes. I think it becomes a little bit more tricky after the election. If the if the opposition wins, what we think would be a, a good idea is to move very quickly to recognize the the win um, as soon as the Turkish Supreme Election Commit- Council declares the results. They're supposed to um, declare temporary results on the on midnight at the night of the election on May 14th, and then final results on may nineteenth and then there will, as I said, probably be a runoff, which would be may twenty eighth with results along a similar schedule so so I think it would be uh it would be very important to to uh, if the opposition wins to try to freeze that in place by recognizing that the free and fair process took place, keep quiet again if there's a second round and then I think our most important advice probably is to is that when, if, when a new government comes in place, there's going to be, it's, it's going to be a somewhat divided government because its only principle for its election to a certain degree is, um, is anti-Erdogan uh, and the coalition is an uneasy one in the sort of tradition of the anti-Netanyahu coalition in Israel, for example. Uh, and so they should be nudged to re, we should nudge Europeans to rethink Turkey and to be thinking about giving them incentives toward restarting uh, the EU membership process. That doesn't mean that they will finish it, but it's we, sh- we think that they should be encouraging Turkey's new leaders to go to Brussels and to jumpstart uh, the EU process, which can provide, uh, even the process itself can provide a layer of, prote- a degree of protection for Turkish democratic standards, I guess. And then uh, finally, I think, it would be a good idea from the U.S. side to send sort of positive signals on U.S.-Turkish relations about what can happen with this new opposition in place, such as getting rid of some of the difficult uh, outstanding issues like the sale of F-16s, diversions regarding the Turks and the, the S-400 uh, anti-aircraft system, which is the Russian S-400 anti-aircraft system, which has been a source of divide between the U.S. and Turkish governments for several years. So I like to
0: spend a bit of time in the last bit talking about this EU-Turkey relationship. But before we do that, let's just play out some of these different scenarios, because if Erdogan wins, it'll be relatively straightforward. What happens within Turkey, presumably?
1: (laughs) Some type of a managed decline at this point, seeing how uh, governance is clearly failing, and Turkey will face economic headwinds, further, you know, capital exodus. I, I think that it would be a choice between Venezuela and Argentina in terms of the economy. Uh, Turkey will continue to be Turkey, a strong uh, enough, a big, big country on the periphery of Europe, and there would still be need for a stable Turkish. EU and Turkish American and, relationship. And do you think that
0: there's any way of unblocking the, the Swedish question if Erdogan wins again?
1: I think so. I think there will be more of a desire on the part of uh, you know on the part of Ankara to negotiate. But uh, I my, the signals I'm getting is that Turkey will ratify this. They just want something more. And I think Swedes are passing a new anti-terrorism law, which could be you know described as a concession to Turkey, even though that it isn't. And I think there is talks talks between the two governments and in some of the judicial processes and, um, possibly an extradition, uh, but not uh, the the sort of long list Turkey has, but somebody that has clearly violated Swedish law and is not a Swedish citizen. So, I mean, if Turkey wants to do this, and I think they will, and they will also try to get something from the US. I'm not hopeless if Erdogan wins. Uh, I don't think it's hopeless. Uh, It's just more negotiations and the price will go up.
2: It's also important to note that that it, as bad as the Turkish economy has been in recent months, uh, it's been on somewhat of a sugar high um, for the election, uh, that the government has been sort of feeding the economy in order to keep it afloat until the election. And it's probably going to have a sort of, uh, yeah, sugar crash, um, right, not too long after the election, no matter who is was elected. Uh, and so that means that the sort of first order of business for the new government or for a new Erdogan government is going to be to try to deal with an economic crisis. And that is going to provide some opportunities um, for the West, also for Russia, frankly, to uh, make different kinds of deals with the Turkish government, whoever is in power.
0: Okay. So the other scenario, obviously Erdogan loses. We've seen various different strategies for dealing with losses. We saw the January the 6th strategy, which obviously um, some people will say wasn't a loss, but um, I'm not one of them. (laughs) Uh, uh, There are obviously Bolsonaro's and other things more along those lines, but um, there's also the kind of Netanyahu approach of waiting in the wings until the new government collapses and then uh, coming back in. And then other people have have actually left and and, uh, gone away, taken refuge in other places. What do you think uh, is the most likely Erdogan response to a loss? I suppose it depends partly on how big the loss is.
1: You know, people keep asking me, would Erdogan accept a defeat? And my answer to that is very clear. If it's neck and neck... He would try to do what Trump, he would do what Trump has tried to do, what Bolsonaro has tried to do and contest the elections if it's too small a margin. But if it's something over one and a half, two points, and I'm totally making up that number myself, you could argue that that golden number is something else. But if it's over 1.75 percent let's say the difference he would accept it i'm i'm fairly confident that he would accept a defeat if it is not neck and neck and the difference is oh, two points because he's this is a man who's built his entire legitimacy on the ballot the uh, idea that he was elected therefore can do anything he wants and it would be hard to turn back on that. And then also because Turkey will have very dire economic circumstances and possibly a currency collapse, collapse a devaluation immediately after the election. So he can sit back, lead a sizable parliamentary group, uh, be at the helm of a sizable group in the parliament and plot his return, much like uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, there is a sense in the country that this, uh, this is the first. Whoever wins, this is the first of a n- number of elections, that there could be an election two years down the road, even though it, there isn't one scheduled. So I think Erdogan could very much uh, pursue a BB uh, formula to come back in two, three years' time after an economic uh, decline. The most difficult thing for uh, the the West in terms of response, and Jeremy has talked about it, it would, it would be if there's an unforeseen situation, uh, instability, unrest, contested elections, in other words. And there I think the temptation to uh, come in very strongly uh, you know, in support of the opposition will be there, but we do think that the rest, you know, the United States and Europe should be judicious in their statements and emphasize principles principles, but not um, weigh in on who is right and wrong. There could be mechanisms that could be on offered, uh, Venice Commission reports, etc., But uh, previous reports, but not really come out in favour of one side or another.
0: So we're, we're running out of time now. And we have an opportunity to discuss something that we haven't talked about for many years on this podcast because it's just been so far from the agenda, but that's the idea of opening chapters and resuming <laughs> negotiations for accession between the.
2: I know you've missed those discussions, Mark.
0: Well, actually, we've been talking about it for Ukraine and Moldova and for for several Balkan countries, but Turkey not so much recently. Do you think that there will be a demand to do that from the Turkish side? Do you think there's any credibility to this process after the decades that people been talking about Turkey joining the EU?
1: Look, this has been a hypocritical process in the sense that Turkey has really deviated from EU norms and mastery criteria, etc. But the accession process was untouched, was still there, technically in the books, technically still open. And it turns out this may come in handy after the elections. If the opposition is elected, they will have a hard time bringing the con- country back to rule of law because it is such a legal mess, because this new centralized system governance, because uh, you know there will be domestic pressure from Erdogan. So the EU process might provide a roadmap, but also a cover. For for the next government, and I think that uh, many of the accession chapters that have been open, I forget the numbers now. I want to say sixteen or have been open, but many frozen. Um, but I'm into, we were interested in another chapter. That is not being opened, and uh, that is the one on justice, judicial reform. That could provide, that could prove to be very handy. There's another way Europeans can help steer Turkey, uh, can can facilitate Turkey's return to uh, a rule of law framework. That is, uh, if they were willing to engage in, with Ankara, at least start discussions on visa-free travel. There were discussions, uh, there, there, were, there was a process for visa-free travel, and I know that's not realistic, and I know that's not going to happen. But that process involves the changes in Turkey's anti-terror law. Uh, last anyone has last we left it 2015 it was down to seven words in turkey's anti-terrorism legislation and if those seven words were to change a lot of people would, would be able to come out of jail in turkey people who are in jail for social media for effectively words not deeds and and i think that would be in, important and it would have huge support in Turkish society because they do they do want to see movement on visa-free travel.
0: So Jeremy, you said that the EU should um, respond positively to a request to restart negotiations. Do you think there's any chance of, of uh, the 27 member states agreeing to that?
2: Yeah, I think there's some chance of it in the moment of an opposition victory in which there is some momentum behind the idea of, of using the EU process to st- to uh, stabilize Turkey in the way that Asla said. Obviously, there's massive political obstacles, and I, I would be extremely skeptical of Turkey ever joining the EU, but, but I think it is important to separate the membership from the process. In the first instance, the process is quite useful for Turkey, uh, as, as Asla described, and in the second instance, the process is somewhat less dangerous for the EU uh, than membership now clearly there will be uh, quite a few countries led I suppose by Cyprus that will be that will require some persuasion on this front but I think that there there is enough cynicism about this process intriguingly to allow them to think about starting some chapters without being too worried about finishing the whole process
0: but what you just said leads me to kind of have two thoughts one is you know isn't part of the problem from a Turkish perspective that we have totally separated the process from membership, which is why it has so little ability to to shape Turkish decisions in a way that wasn't true when we first started negotiations where Turkey was making big changes. And then the second thing I sort of wondered is how this question of Turkish accession plays into the long list of candidates that uh, we've just opened negotiations with in the Balkans, Moldova, Ukraine. Surely, some of the the people who are uh, championing Ukrainian membership and the membership of Balkan countries will be worried that um, bringing Turkey back might just delegitimate the process, given that you know they've literally been uh, at this since 1963.
1: I mean, it's the process that Turks will want a post Erdogan government will not dream about membership. They will be realistic enough to know what this is all about. They will need the process itself. So no, nobody fooling anybody there. And uh, the economic impact would be huge. And don't forget that this won't be uh, a charity uh, for Europeans, because Turkey still has important advantages that it brings to the table. First off, the refugee issue. I mean, the next government will want to negotiate with Europe on, uh, on a new refugee deal. Refugee issue is just extremely unpopular in Turkey. And there are basically I mean, this is a side issue, but all political parties are running on some sort of a promise that they will send Syrian refugees back to Syria in a negotiation, with a negotiation, on buses, immediately, overnight, in two years, building homes, not building homes, but it's across. the. So uh, this will be something Europeans want clarity on. And I think that will be the leverage Turks have in this process.
0: Okay. I I can't help but wonder whether People who are trying to slow down the accession process for for others might try to to say we need to do this as a big group, and that when Turkey uh, gets in,
2: then we'll let Ukraine, Moldova, Albania not do that. Mark, but they're not going to do it on the first day.
1: Just because Europe EU is a process driven organization, Turks are far more advanced in the, in terms of their uh, key on. Uh, membership talks than European than Ukrainians or Moldovans and any of the countries
0: in the Balkans,
1: um, not any, but you know they are quite advanced.
0: Okay, well we're all gonna watch the developments over the next few weeks with bated breath. I'm sure we'll probably come back to you after the elections, whether it's scenario that ends up happening. In the meantime, I do recommend the article which Jeremy and Asla have written on how the West should prepare for the election. Uh, but as well as that, we have one more thing to do on the podcast, which is to to recommend other things on our bookshelves. Um, Asla, what what's on your bookshelf at the moment?
1: So I picked up an old copy of George Cannon's memoirs, 1925-1950. It's really a beautifully written book, uh very super interesting. Obviously he's the, you know, he was one of the key uh, architects of uh containment policy during Cold War and you know important person just in terms of uh, international relations full stop. But the memoirs are the prose is beautiful and I am really enjoying uh, reading about Europe and Russia in the 30s and the 40s and post-war from the perspective of a US diplomat. I really have this theory uh, that it's probably served as an important inspiration for uh, for a gentleman in Moscow because the prose is so similar, similarly beautiful, I should say.
2: And what about you, Jeremy? Uh, I'm reading a book called uh, "The Keys to Democracy: Sortition as a New Model for Citizen Power." This is a book that was just recently published in March by uh, Maurice Pope. Uh, and Maurice Pope, uh, who who died a few years ago, is um, uh, was a classicist, and his son uh, Hugh Pope, who is a, a friend of mine and actually the father of a, of an ECFR. Uh, employee uh, Amanda Pope um, uh, he he found this book in his father's things and uh, his father had tried to publish it many years ago and failed uh, he re-edited it and got it published and it's uh, it's surprisingly a lot more relevant today than when Maurice Pope originally wrote it he was re- uh, relying he was sort of echoing his experience in understanding Athenian and classical democracy and the ways in which they used instead of elections, which he was very skeptical of, they used uh, sortition, basically random selection to put ordinary people in control of decision-making in government. And uh, recently there's been a lot of experiments in this in Ireland where they used it to reform their abortion law. And I think they're about to use it to discuss their neutrality and in France, where they've uh, used it in a couple of different in uh, carbon issues and environmental issues, and their uh, and in euthanasia issues. Um, so it's a fascinating book on how random selection can be a more democratic tool than elections.
0: So I um, am going to continue my uh, r- recent tradition of taking everyone very lowbrow and. <laughs> Uh, looking at Netflix uh, ra- rather than libraries for, for my recommendations. And the most recent one is uh, a series on uh, Netflix called The Diplomat, which is very apropos of the last two editions of uh, The World in 30 Minutes. It's very much about the vassalization not of of Europe as a whole, but of the UK. The plot line's not very sophisticated. Some of the acting's a little bit wooden. It's an advanced case of of vassalization. But for people in our world, uh, what is kind of charming is the fact that you get to see a lot of buildings which are very familiar. The US Embassy, the Foreign Office, Ditchley Park. um, And... uh, and the thrill of seeing uh, lots of places that one's walked through represented in in rather lush way on Netflix outweighs any flaws in the plot. Um, It's been great talking to the two of you. If other people have enjoyed it, please do head to whatever platform you've used to download this podcast and subscribe to future editions. And while you're there, we would be enormously grateful if you could give us a positive review and a positive rating as well because uh, that really helps bring other people to the podcast. The editor of this podcast is uh, Maria Faro-Saratz and our researcher is Anand Sunda. But for now, from Jeremy, Asler and myself, Mark Leonard, it's Goodbye. Mm-hmm.